Hello everyone and welcome to Representation in Cinema. We talk about the representation of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color in movies. This podcast is hosted by Our Voices Project. Our goal is to dismantle destructive stereotypes of minority groups perpetuated in the media by producing films centered on the multifaceted experiences of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people by providing educational resources across marginalized groups brought on by the stories we share. Our Voices Project is also a committed community partner, providing opportunities to affirm racial and cultural identities, empowering students as agents of social change, and contributing to an individual's learning through cultivation of critical thinking. I'm Jackie McGriff, the director and producer for the Our Voices Project, and joining me is our incredible cinematographer, editor, and woman whose personal mission is to make sure you have fun things planned during your week, Deborah Alvarez. Welcome, Deb. <laughs> Jackie. Yes, I added a new title. Um, you're welcome. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, and then joining us on the podcast today is Mia Alafari, a postdoctoral fellow with the federal, I'm sorry, Frederick Douglass Institute for African American Studies at the University of Rochester. Welcome, Mia. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Mia's research draws together African-American literature, medical history, and environmental studies to investigate the complexities of Black health in America from the earliest 20th century to the present. She is currently working on a book called Transplanting Blackness, which reads Harlem Renaissance literature's botanical imagery as evidence of the movement's investment in environmental health. Also joining us on today's episode is Miriam Zinter. On July 5th, 2021, Miriam Zinter had an uncomfortable conversation with a neighbor whom she had known for 30 years. The neighbor asked why she had a Black Lives Matter sign in her front yard when people, when Black people, quote, murder each other every day and Black lives don't matter to them, end quote. Miriam Zinter is a Black woman who is very light-skinned and appears to be white. This encounter was a catalyst which inspired her to write a personal piece for the Huffington Post entitled, I'm Black but Look White, Here Are the Horrible Things White People Feel Safe Telling Me. The piece went viral, garnering millions of views and generating discourse on the subject of race. What is race? What is Black? Who, or who is Black? Who is white? With the Netflix movie Passing and the best-selling novel The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, these are questions which require uncomfortable conversations. These are questions Miriam Zinter had considered ever since she was three years old and her family was the first Black family to live in Liverpool, New York in 1967. They faced vandalism of their home on a regular basis and both subtle and overt racism from neighbors. For the past 35 years, Miriam has worked on a variety of social justice issues, including homelessness, affordable housing, and home ownership in the Black community. Miriam sits on several boards of directors, including the House of Mercy, Pathstone, and WXXI's Community Advisory Board, as well as WXXI's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Miriam is a member of Pillars, which is a group of African-American and Hispanic professionals who work within the Rochester City School District to mentor students. Welcome, Miriam. Should have unmuted myself. Thanks so much for having <laughs> me today, Jackie. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so let's get started. Passing is a period drama released in 2021 starring Tessa Thompson, who you may know from Sylvie's Love, Sorry to Bother You, um, and both Thor Ragnarok and Love and Thunder, and Ruth Nega from Loving and the TV series Preacher. Set in New York City in the 1920s, a woman's world is turned upside down when she runs into a childhood friend who is passing as white. The film is based on the novel by Nella Larson by the same name and is directed by Rebecca Hall, making her di directorial debut. 
excuse me. So if you haven't watched the film already, you can watch it on Netflix now and then come back to listen and or watch our podcast. From here on out, though, we'll be discussing the film in depth. So spoilers ahead. You have been warned. All right. So our first question, because there's a lot, so much to talk about um, within like our usual 45 minute thing. Um, so I will start. Mia, if you'd like to start us off with what's one thing that impacted you the most with this film? Sure. So I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who's very attached to passing, not just the the film, but also the novel. Mm -hmm. And I think um, what's been really impactful for me about this story is the way that it takes a really raw and honest look at the experiences of multiracial people or folks who um, you might call racially ambiguous in the sense that someone can look at them and maybe not be able to place them racially. Um, and looking into experiences that are often discounted, uh, particularly the experiences of belonging and alienation. And I think the story, um, even as it's translated to film, does a really good job of helping us think critically about, you know, what's at stake when we have a rigid conception of the color line and you know how that can bar certain people from belonging in any group and what the consequences of that are not just for an individual but for for everyone yeah all, all great points uh and miriam how about you my answer to the question about what impacted me the most about the film is probably less cerebral than than mia's uh, i grew up watching, um, oh, I can't think of it. Of course, now I can't think of the name of, of the movie, but basically it's the kind of the tragic mulatto trope where, you know, every single movie, the, there's, the, there's the tragic mulatto. She, she rejects her culture. She tries to be somebody she's not. She, she creates the, the ultimate taboo of um, presenting a very false, face to who she is and she loses everything. She loses her family, she loses her self-respect. And in this case, uh, both Claire and Rini, um, I think, you know, epitomize the tragic mulatto uh, in that, you know, Claire dies and, spoiler, and, <laughs> you know, and- They've been warned, they've been warned, so it's good. Yeah, okay. and Rini, um, in my opinion, was in love with Claire, but had this very conflicted um, relationship on so many levels and was responsible in a number of ways for, for Claire's ending. And so her, she continues on, but it's very tragic. You know, a person that she was obsessed with, that she was in love with, um, you know, is no longer there, a very large block of her life. So with me, I, I felt like here it is 2022, and we're still passing along this, you know, tragic mulatto trope. And I think that we could have done, we could have done a, a different story with it. Um, I, I, it didn't end the way I thought it was going to. Mm, okay, I'm going to come back to um, what you think should have been done, because that is a very good, uh, that is a very good point. Um, and, and then you're also coming from like, like a place that is not 
that is not my because I had never thought about it that way from looking at the film. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely definitely want to come back to that later on. Um, Imitation of Life was the movie. My parents made me watch it. I remember as like a young kid, they were like, "This is Imitation of Life," and look at she rejected her family. She pretended she was white. In the end, her mother dies and she runs after her mother's coffin screaming, mama, mama, but it's too late. So I remember like oh watching gosh. that movie and thinking, this is something I will never do. Wow. Okay. I add that to the list of movies that we need to watch, Deb. Um, okay. Wow. Um, Deb, how about you? What was the most impactful for you in the film? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so... Gosh, so it was the it was my first time watching it uh, not too long ago. So looking back, it was gut wrenching to watch the scene where you see Irene and uh, Claire and her husband, and you know talking. And he had just met Irene, and the comment that they made with um, Claire about you know he's like, oh, she's getting a little more darker and darker. Uh, throughout our marriage, I would, you know, and then of course, following the comment um, and then her laughter, uh, mechanical laughter, it, it was just heart-wrenching to watch. Um, and really one of those moments, especially given the time period where it's like, you know, you don't see many examples of women speaking up. Mm -hmm. um, and so with, for her, it was very, it was a very hard place. So it was just one of those scenes that I was like, well, this is, I mean, they, they could really uh, start exploring that a little bit more. And I, and I think from that, I think that that set the tone to like where I knew that where Claire stood and I knew where Irene stood mm -hmm. basically Gotcha. as far yeah. as how they respected their race and how they beat the race. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah. So the thing, I mean, there were several things, but the, the thing that stuck out to me the most, I think, um was the way in which so her so Rini's husband being a, a black American who can't who can't pass and neither can their kids uh right when you're looking at them there's no way that they can pass and everything like that and she's in this she's in like Rini's in this committee uh, I'm assuming it's for like it's, it's part of the Negro League and he's trying to have these conversations with these boys who are growing boys of of current events that are happening so there are current events happening and she i mean given everything all the context that's going on within the film it still just strikes me that even though she is this person who is all for the advancement of right of black people she still can't find like the the opportunity or doesn't even want to have a discussion with the rest of her family um about lynchings that are taking place you know things that are just happening in the world wanting to move out feeling like it's not safe for black people um trying to her husband is trying to have these conversations with her and yet she doesn't want to entertain that or having her like her her sons come to that reality and i'm not a mother and i don't like i'm outside of that so just from like someone who's outside of that not under fully understanding like why she wouldn't want to have those conversations that to me i think among lots of other things because i could just make a list but that that every like the, my second time watching this film 
out of like everything, um, like was just the thing that I just, I kept coming back to. Um, so when I think, so Deb, when you were talking about, um, and I, well, I think we've all touched on this a, a little bit. Um, so you know, you're talking about like the, the so tra tragic, you know, mulatto, like that stereotype and everything. Deb, when you're talking back to when they first meet or the, you know, when you see Claire for the first time and, and you know, you're finding out who her husband is and everything like that. So um, at the first party, so we're talking about, so at the first party, so yeah, never mind. When I'm going back to, I think I just referenced the first meeting, but um, I'm going to actually save that for a little bit later on in our discussion. I want to talk about the, that first party. So again, mentioning the Negro League, this is the party that that Rini is hosting um, or helping put together and everything like that. Um, after pointing out to Hugh, so this is the, the, the man that she's talking to in this specific scene that I'm referencing. Um, Hugh, when he's, she's pointing out or pointing out to Hugh that Claire is passing, Rini states, we're all just passing for something or other, aren't we? To what do you think she's referring? Um, Mar Mar Miriam, I don't know why I'm having difficulty talking today, but <laughs> Miriam, I'll, I'll uh, point it to you first. Oh, I, I think that Rini was gay and she's passing, you know, I mean, it's the twenties. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know how much she knew about, you know, being gay or, you know, if, if there was a community, particularly in the black community, if there was any kind of recognition for LBGTQ at all. So she maybe had all of these feelings. And when she talked about, um, you know, a feeling and an attraction that was slightly repugnant, um, you know, I'm sure she kept pushing those feelings down. And then when they, you know, would go through the time and always that clock is ticking and they're showing the changing of the seasons and how she becomes more and more depressed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just think she, you know, she was, she was passing for being straight and being content and being in a happy relationship. And none of that was true. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think I first got the hint of something just like being, well, first with her, her first meeting with Claire, but then also just her interactions with the husband. I was just like, y'all, couldn't y'all seem like the furthest apart and i was like i don't know if that's just your relationship but something is definitely off um so i definitely agree with that um mia how about you i definitely agree with miriam too that was that was the first thing that i thought of um i also think that irene may be passing for content in a, in a broader sense mm -hmm. so um she projects this image of being you know, the, the proper race woman who's invested in these causes. Her husband is a doctor. As a couple, they're uplifting the race. But at the same time, she seems to me to be unhappy in that life and is really just trying to project, at least on a certain level, trying to project a certain image that her heart may not be totally invested in. And that, that might tie back to what you were saying, Jackie, about her not wanting to actually go into detail about these social issues and the, and the racial violence at hand. Um, so I think she's she's passing as happy in the life that she's created in mm. this mold that she thinks she should fit. Yeah, um, 
I also wonder if she could be talking a bit about Hugh in this moment, um, in the sense that he may be passing for progressive um, mm. in being at this party, but he may be sort of exoticizing um, some of the people just as, as Irene was, was talking about. Yes, we'll get to that quote later. Can't wait to talk about it. Um, awesome. Thank you, Mia. Um, and Deb, to you, to what yeah. you think she's referring no, it was it was super interesting. I loved the scene in its entirety. There was, gosh, I was having a mix of emotions throughout that whole thing because being a bi woman, I was wondering too, I'm like, wait a minute, something's like not right. She seems like she's really connected with, like she has a connection with Claire more so than her husband. So it was like, okay. And in, in a sense at first, I'm like, well, maybe she is able to relate to Claire because she's another a woman who can pass and so there's that you know that like connection there but and she also kind of feels kind of I don't know it seemed like she feels kind of sorry for Claire because she knows that even though Claire has like picked a side or is she still feels trapped like it seems that Claire is still trapped obviously because she's I mean she's in a marriage where she's lying so mm -hmm. um yeah, it was just very interesting just watching that whole thing play out. And it made me think, okay, so Jackie, this <laughs> yeah. literally, there was, so there's a part, you know how she, Irene reaches out her hand um, to yes, Claire yes, and they yes. share that moment. I thought about the scene in Nicholas Nickleby. Oh God, <laughs> no, there'll be no talk of Nicholas Nickleby here, okay? I, all of the slander, all of the slander. We don't have time, we don't have time. I, that'll be a whole other podcast, people. For those of you listening and are watching, um, I have a, it's not a love-hate relationship, um, <laughs> love-hate relationship with Nicholas Nickleby, because um, I do love period dramas, um, as we're talking about today, but no, I will not, we, yeah, that's for another discussion, another time, probably off the podcast, um, because. Well, I can mention, like, at least the joke, the fact that, right, is that okay? Yeah, no, go ahead, okay. go ahead. No, so, so with Nicholas Nickleby, um, I didn't think that the relationship between the main guy and this other side character, they were, Jackie thought that they were gay, but. Okay, yeah, weird. okay, just the, yeah. let me just add the context and then it'll be it, <laughs> that'll be it, because I could just go on all day about this. Um, so for, for Miriam and Mia, for your, for your context, as well as uh, the rest of our listeners, so, um, I'm always looking for period dramas, of course, to watch. Um, Deb had, I had mentioned Nicholas Nickleby, which was a film that I think you grew up on just loving. And so uh, I borrowed the DVD, I watched it, and there are several, several moments within the movie where the two main characters, okay, Nicholas Nickleby and his, his friend, right, share these like like loving kind of like yearning exchanges at one another and i'm like wait 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 do they love each other and like he has a woman like love interest but i kept saying no deb no i i don't i don't think that's the case even though that's what the movie was pushing for you know at the end yeah. he gets the whatever but i'm just like uh hey no absolutely not plus there are several several gay actors in the film so i was like is that what they're are they trying to hint at that like what is going on so no i do understand yes that hand exchange that they have that was also another sign to me i was like no see she's yeah. not only obsessed with her she is 
she loves her or she at least like is attracted to her the like, sexual tension yes. was so thick you could cut yes. it with a knife there was so and much that wasn't being that wasn't being said yeah. like after she met claire for the first time and then she like attacked her husband and he was like who's this and you could tell she was thinking of claire when she was all over her husband and i said damn <laughs> Miriam, I detect no lies, no lies whatsoever. Um, oh. That is about it. Okay, so that I'm going to segue into a question that I had um, for all of you because I just think, again, just going back to that first party, it's like, it. I mean, it just catapults everything else, right? It just, or it starts, it kicks off like everything else. Um, so again at the party so irene and, and hugh are talking about a specific they like pick out a specific gentleman like in the in the party or whatever and they're talking about whether or not he's attractive irene points out that and and said this is in quotes it's just plain exoticism an interest in what's different a kind of emotional excitement something that you feel in the presence of something strange and even perhaps a bit repugnant to you does that not sound <laughs> like exactly what we're talking about? So if you're only hearing the scene, or if you're not seeing what's happening, so if you're only hearing the scene, it's clearly about, and then they make this reference earlier in the conversation about why people attending black parties and like how there's that like, again, that tinge of like excitement being about something that is like different, but again, a bit repugnant to you. So. However, so that's only if you're hearing it, but if you're also seeing, you're hearing what she's saying and you're seeing like where the camera's focused on, it alternates back and forth between Irene speaking and Claire dancing. So do you think it's, it's, it's obsession or, and I think we've already clarified this, but um, just to reiterate, do you think that Irene is obsessed with her or do you think it's more than that? What are your thoughts? Uh, Miriam, I'll go back to you and then I'll shoot it over to Mia. Well, I think instead of using the word repugnant, if you switch it with forbidden, mm. uh, it becomes very clear. But also in that same scene, after Claire's done dancing, she comes over and she stands next to Irene and the camera pans and it's Irene's viewpoint. And it starts at Claire's head and then it just drifts all the way down to Claire's, am I allowed to say ass? Yeah, sure. That's where it drifts down to. And then she kind of leans over and she holds Claire's hand. And I was just like, you know, obviously when she was watching Claire's dancing and she was talking about it. She was not talking about the handsome gentleman Claire was talking about. She was talking about her feelings for Claire and the, the lust that she was feeling. And I think that that was kind of in the beginning of the relationship. And then as it progressed through the seasons, mm -hmm. it developed actually, I think, deeper into love. Yeah, absolutely. I would 100% uh, back that up. Uh, Mia, how do you feel? I definitely agree. It seems to be a moment of projection, not to say that what Rini's observing isn't isn't clear and, and true on its own, but she seems to be projecting her own feelings in that moment and discussing her own feelings. Um, in terms of whether she's just obsessed with Claire or if it's more than that, I think we've established there's there's a romantic attraction there. But I also feel like there's there's some more layers to how Irene feels about Claire and why she's obsessed. And part of it seems to be 
um, jealousy and, and concern that Claire might replace her in the family. Like there's a there's an earlier scene when Claire first comes to the Redfields house. Mm-hmm. And um, well, it might, it might be her second visit, but Irene comes down the stairs and she sees the reflection in a mirror of Brian and Claire. And it first looks like they're really close. Mm-hmm. And then she comes around the corner and she sees actually that they're standing further apart. So she seems to have some paranoia about um, Claire sort of stepping into her shoes as well. Now, as now Mia, as someone who has, you had mentioned earlier that you had read the book, um, is this more clear in the book, like about like her, when you're talking about, you know, her fearing or just like yeah, having this fear of like being replaced by Claire, is that more prominent in the book or is it leaning towards some someplace else? Like having those, again, like drawing out those romantic feelings or at least hiding those romantic feelings that she has for Claire. You know, I think it's in, intentionally ambiguous in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're supposed to wonder um, what what Reedy is feeling about Claire. Um, I do think that there are clear moments where you just think, oh yeah, this is, this is more mm-hmm. than that. Um, in terms of um, whether the perceived dynamic between Brian and Claire is, is clearer. I think that that, that is clearer in the text. Um, there is a moment where Irene says to herself, you know, she would not be uprooted, not even by Claire Kendry, which sort of speaks to this idea that she's afraid Claire is going to disrupt her life. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, I'm glad they draw a line somewhere in the film because whenever something is ambiguous, I'm like, no, just, just tell me. Um, <laughs> Um, Deb, um, your thoughts? Yeah, so initially going in, I was um, already aware that Irene wasn't really in love with her husband and was more obsessed with Claire. And so watching it, at first, I thought that she was talking about her husband um, because I was like, well, you know, I mean, he could be seen as the guy dancing with Claire as well in that regard, but... But again, it was like, wait, no, like it makes way more sense. The more she was like later on, I was like, yeah, it was about Claire. So there was like this like mix of, mm-hmm. you know, feelings and like realization, like, wait, is it the husband? Is it Claire? Like what's actually going on? And it just, as it unfolded, it became more clear to me. Right. Um, like uh, Mia had said before, layers, like there are so many, <laughs> there are so many different layers that you can put on that uh, for sure. Thanks, Deb. Um, okay, so moving right along, um, who and or what do you think is responsible for Claire's death? Um, Miriam, I'll have you start. You know, layers, layers again. <laughs> so, you know, when when Rini bumped into Claire's husband on the street and she is with her friend and clearly i mean clearly he she knows he's figured it out she like makes one call but then she sees claire and she doesn't say hey the jig is up you know Mm. warning you your husband knows and you know what he said about he hates black people so she doesn't say anything they walk up there now, granted, she opens the window so she could smoke. And then I replayed it over and over. Did she 
Did she shove her out that window? Was she trying to protect her? Was it a combination of both? It was ambiguous. I mean, was it Claire's lies caught up with her? Was it that she had stated that if John ever found out, Claire was going to just move in with Rini and Rini couldn't have that because her husband and kids like Claire better? Or Rini couldn't have that because she wouldn't be able to hide her true feelings for Claire? Or Rini couldn't have that because having the person she loves so close under the roof of her house would be more than she could bear? So many layers. Mia, how about you? I, I guess I think one way of looking at it is that there's a collective responsibility for what happens to Claire. Um, what I think is really interesting about that scene symbolically is that Claire falls out the window and then everybody sort of falls with her. Um, so suddenly they're all racing down the stairs. They're all going down to the pavement with her. And to me, that sort of implies that this is a collective fate and a collective responsibility for what happens to Claire. Um, despite all of the sort of foreshadowing that Irene might do something to Claire, like the flower pot falling out the window, mm -hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, but I, I guess I read it as a collective responsibility. No, that's a great point. I actually thought of that to my second rewatch or my rewatch, um, was like that, well, that scene where the flower pot, um, like, or she drops the flower pot and everything. I started to think back to like when the first time I watched it and seen like or saw or had or seen that scene, seen, saw that scene. Um, I'm just gonna let it go. Um, <laughs> but um, and I'm like trying to think of like the parallels between the two and everything, and like thinking, is it talking about her being responsible or at least partially responsible? You know, like she dropped the flower pot. Um, you know, and then. I don't know, is she, again, I, I go back and forth between, is she protecting her? Um, is she, or is she like, kind of like helping her like out of the, you know, out of the window? I don't know. Deb, what are your thoughts? Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking of how she initially tried to turn away Claire by, by using the excuse of her safety the issue of her safety being a thing with her and her family by coming to see, um, Re is Rini her nickname? Is yeah, Rini, okay. that's what Claire calls her. That's what Claire calls her, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, I, for I forgot. Um, yeah, no, she, so she was having that, but it, it didn't seem like that was really her reason of not wanting to talk to Claire. And it, and it literally, it makes me think, I'm like wondering, is it because of the conversation with her and her husband and she agrees with her husband that she shouldn't give an inch to Claire? Mm -hmm. um, or should it be like something, you know, where she ha she's noticing she's ha having these feelings and she thinks that having Claire in her life is gonna make it more complicated or make her, you know, like make it harder for her. Um, and so she's thinking of herself now mm -hmm. regards to her whether or not she killed claire it did look ambiguous the way it was filmed but i personally think that she she felt torn um she wanted to help claire but then she also was jealous of her and like obviously had the obsession and loved her and, and didn't 
but also was like, you know, it's like she didn't like the, she was paranoid. Um, like you were saying me of, of how she was around her, hu Irene's husband. So it's like, it, it, yeah, I think it was just like a mix. Um, like she wanted to protect Claire in that moment, but it was like accident that she got pushed. I think, I think it was an honest accident to be honest, even though it was filmed ambiguous, I think it was an accident. <laughs> and she just was too stunned to like, understand fully what was going on afterwards because yeah. you, you know how the camera hangs on her and she's yes. like yeah what did I do you know like what happened <laughs> yes so. with stellar acting uh by the way by by Tessa Thompson who did not get an Oscar nom I'm not bitter about it at all um but you know such is life um I seriously also, I will oh yeah go ahead sorry I think I think she's also bisexual in real life too actually uh yeah Tessa Thompson yeah Yep. Um, okay, so I want to go back. Uh, we do have a little bit of time here to get into um, something, Miriam, that you had mentioned earlier about growing up and, and, and seeing all these movies that sort of depict, again, the, not sort of, they do depict this tragic mulatto. Um, I want to hear your, your response to what you think passing should have done. Um, instead to kind of turn that. I don't know if it if it should should have done something, but when they were showing Claire and Rini together, I was actually really worried about this this plot that I thought I saw coming along the way. So they keep showing Claire and Rini getting closer and closer and having this bond. But and then they keep having the husband talk about lynching mm -hmm. and this perceived this lynching of the man in Arkansas because he was with a white woman and then Rini keeps telling her husband why don't you go to this event with Claire putting him and what I thought if unless they were sticking with in Harlem a potentially deadly situation of a black man with a white woman, mm. particularly if they ran into John, Claire's husband. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, I really hope that this isn't a plot of where Claire and Rini get together and they think, let's set Brian up and, you know, arrange for John to bump into Claire with Brian and she's like oh this black man's bothering me and he frightens me and then Brian gets lynched and then Claire leaves John and then Rini and Claire run off together and that's what I thought was gonna happen so and I thought oh my gosh these bitches <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what happened. Thank but, God. But I was like, why do they keep bringing up the lynching? It's like bringing out the gun in scene one mm -hmm. and then never using it. I thought that for sure it was going to be, Claire was going to end up with, um, with Brian being cozy and then due to fear or a plot or something, throw him under the bus, mm -hmm. just like she threw her culture, her race mm -hmm. under the bus for a long time. Wow. And so I was surprised when that didn't happen. Hmm. That is, oh my gosh, there's so many interesting points that you, like, you and, and me are making. I'm just like, dang, I need to watch again. Um, as you know, as one should, I mean, it's again, we're talking about multiple layers. I do think that it's interesting that you bring up the, 
that, that you bring that point up too, because I had a little bit of, I had a little bit of that thinking though for the end scene, because I'm like, here's this woman, woman who is passing as white, right? So if the cops take a look at this white woman who fell from a window, right? And all of these black people are surrounding, I'm thinking, oh dear God, like what's gonna happen to those people? So, yeah, so, but, but to also bring that back to, again, like this idea of setting, setting Brian up, right? With like having her, having Claire go with him to the party and then it ultimately being something to just throw him under the bus. Whew, I, I don't know how, I don't know if I would have been able to finish the movie, but no, that is a good point. I'm glad it didn't go that way, but I think that's also too the, I think, Another thing that I really I like about this movie um, is that it goes into these directions that I didn't think that they were going to go into. Um, and so, yeah, no, that is that is a really it's really interesting and thought provoking because I again I like after we talk I'm going to be thinking about that for at least another hour or so um, because yeah that is a great point that you that you bring up um let's see okay so final thoughts uh about the film anything that you want to mention um you know that we haven't already talked about mia i will start with you um if we had more time i would i would definitely want to talk more about the scene where uh rini meets Claire's husband and finds out the awful racist nickname that he has for her. Because what, what I thought was so, I mean, when he said that, that was distressing. But what I found even more unsettling was the way that Irene laughed in that moment because she's so controlled um, otherwise. And she has this moment of sort of kind of losing it and putting Claire in danger by laughing too much and laughing too hard at that joke. So. That was that's a scene I'm still thinking about and I don't quite know what to make of it. But yeah, so if we had more time, that's what I would talk about. I thought it was because Rini was terrified mm. because she at that point realized she was in the lion's den with a crazy racist white man yeah. and a person she hadn't seen for a long time that she really couldn't trust. And yeah. if she was thinking, if he takes a good look at me, you know what will happen to me but yeah that maniacal laughter was terrifying yeah that's why it impacted me so much because i was like oh my gosh like it's a very heavy scene yeah what were you gonna say jackie oh no i was just gonna say again um like amazing amazing acting by tessa thompson and also ruth nega who Again, did not get nominations. I'm not bitter about it. Like I keep saying, I'm clearly bitter about it and I will be for the foreseeable future. Um, Deb, <laughs> your final thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting uh, looking at this film and really, because I'm biracial as well, um, but of course I, I cannot relate in this regard to this um, example, but definitely a lot of the inner turmoil scene on film, I think was pretty accurate and well done. Um, especially, you know, with that scene with her laughing too long, it's there, it, 
reminded me of times when I would laugh uncomfortably in uncomfortable situations, <laughs> basically. Um, and so it definitely, uh, I think this movie definitely was well done, um, but could could be made better. There could be so much more that you could touch on this type of topic. So I agree with, I, th I think you were saying that Miriam earlier that it could be, you know, there could be another really great spin on that. Um, so, yeah. Um, let's see, as far as, and thank you for very much for sharing Deb um, and for all of you for sharing uh, with my final thoughts. I will say this, I just want to make a quick mention of the brilliant cinematography. I think making the choice to make it black and white, right? To kind of have that, I don't know if ambiguity is the right word, um, but whether or not you think, like just looking at them, you that you could think that they could pass like in, in real life and everything, to just make that not the, like not the argument. The argument here is, like it's between these two women, it's both of them using, I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Miriam, because I don't know if I'm using that correctly, um, but um, they're both in some way using, you know, the fact that they can pass as white um, for, for different reasons. Um, uh, so I want to thank you again, uh, Miriam, for joining us on, our talk about passing. Um, like I said, we should probably, uh, I could That's talk about this. Film. So good. Yes. yes, so, so good. We'll have to definitely talk um, if you want to more about it, of course, offline. Um, Mia, thank you again uh, for joining us as well. Really appreciated your thoughts and um, your feelings about the movie. Yeah, having me. <laughs> Absolutely. To our viewers and listeners, thank you so much for your support of Our Voices Project and our representation in cinema podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at www.ourvoicesproject.com for more information about what we do. You can sign up for our newsletter there uh, to be the first to get notifications about new podcast episodes and projects that we're working on. We're also filmmakers, woo! Um, we're going to be talking about the movie Moonlight in July, so be on the lookout for the discussion coming your way soon. You can listen to this podcast anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts, as well as view it on our YouTube channel. This has been Jackie McGriff and Deborah Alvarez of Our Voices Project. Thank you again for listening and for watching.